This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by your old toaster. Are you looking to set a small fire in your kitchen? Try your old toaster today. I'd like to think I've been pretty good at making climate change more fun and less overwhelming for 119 episodes of the Sweaty Penguin podcast, but you all know we put facts and honesty first. So I have to tell you that this story had me, a noted climate optimist, sulking around my apartment for a few days. Good Wednesday morning. I'm Ethan Brown, and this is Tip of the Iceberg, where I will break down some environmental news and then answer a question from our listeners on the air. Submit questions via Patreon, email, or social media. Patron questions go to the front of the line, so sign up at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Following last year's UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, The Guardian did a five-month investigation, piecing together as clear a picture as possible of planned future oil and gas exploration and production. And by the way, they did a phenomenal job with this. Much of the information about the specific oil and gas projects they analyzed is not publicly available. So it's really amazing that The Guardian's investigation revealed as much as it did. They're like TMZ, but instead of nude selfies, it's equally sexy Excel spreadsheets from oil and gas companies. Their investigation found that the world's biggest fossil fuel firms are quietly planning several oil and gas projects called carbon bombs, which sadly are not sold at Bath and Body Works. Carbon bombs refer to projects that would emit over 1 billion tons of carbon emissions from start to finish. If you can remember from last week, in 2019, the entire world emitted around 59 billion tons of greenhouse gases. So over a billion for one project is a really big number. And The Guardian found that the fossil fuel industry has planned 195 carbon bombs, which together would produce 646 billion tons of carbon emissions. To put that number in further context, we talk a lot about the internationally agreed-upon goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius hotter than pre-industrial times by the year 2100. The latest IPCC report found if we were to emit 650 billion tons more carbon total, not just these projects, not just fossil fuels, but in total, we would only have a 33% chance of keeping global warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius. 67% might be an awesome grade in that one high school math class, but it's not the odds you want for failing global climate goals. The reason there are odds involved is that we can't predict future climates with complete precision. We're just projecting out based on what we know. 
For even a 50-50 chance of staying under 1.5, we could only emit 500 billion tons more, and these 195 projects alone would blow right past that number. And again, oil and gas are not the only source of carbon emissions, they are one of many. These carbon bombs are basically the friend who mooches off everyone at the potluck, but instead of bringing nothing to eat, he brings several million tons of air-polluting chemicals. So if all of these carbon bombs proceed as planned, the 1.5 goal is almost certainly out the door. So I hope I've gotten across how bad 646 billion tons of carbon emissions from just 195 projects in one industry would be. Now, in order to exploit oil and gas fields at the rate that they plan to, the world's 12 biggest oil companies are on track to collectively spend $387 million per day for the rest of the decade. That's more than Tom Brady's entire 10-year broadcasting career at Fox Sports. So if you thought that was a waste of money, imagine if that happened every single day for the rest of the decade. As The Guardian put it, these companies are placing ridiculously large bets that the governments of the world will fail at their climate goal, which is really frustrating, because I don't see that bet on DraftKings. Why do they get bets that we don't? These bets are really high stakes, though, because if governments stepped in and made policies to ensure global warming stayed within the 1.5 degree threshold, these companies would have to write off these massive sums of money as losses, hitting shareholders, pension funds, and public finances. Do governments look poised to rein these 12 companies in? Well, let's look at the list. The company on track to spend the most is Saudi Aramco, which is owned by the government of Saudi Arabia. Number two is Gazprom, which is owned by the Russian government, and sounds like the world's most embarrassing high school dance. Number three is PetroChina, which is owned by the Chinese government. Number six is Rosneft, owned by Russia. Number nine is Petrobras, owned by Brazil. And number 12 is Eni, which the Italian government has a 30% stake in. So six of the 12 companies are totally or partly owned by governments who have agreed to the 1.5 goal, all while planning fossil fuel projects that will make the goal impossible to achieve. And I think that's the part that frustrated me the most. The other six companies on the list are ExxonMobil, Shell, Chevron, Total Energies, BP, and ConocoPhillips. And while it's very frustrating that they're partaking too, they're for-profit businesses, and that's different from government-run operations actively causing harm rather than serving the public interest. If you're a long-time listener, you might be thinking... But solar and wind are less expensive. And yes, they are. But there's a big difference between cheaper and more profitable. An $8 filet mignon that I buy at the grocery store and throw on the grill might taste just as good, if not better, than the $27.99 one I buy at Outback. But people are willing to pay a lot more at Outback, presumably because of the Bloomin' Onion, which is impossible to get anywhere else except chilies, and Applebee's, and 90% of sports bars. 
That's maybe not the best analogy, but it gave me an excuse to talk about grilling, which is all that really matters. If you want to talk about reverse searing for 20 minutes, give me a call literally any time. But my actual point is this. People still have gasoline-powered cars, and gas stoves, and gas furnaces, and while electric alternatives are quickly coming onto the market, most people won't switch right away, leaving plenty of demand for oil and gas. So even though solar and wind are less expensive, the free market isn't going to immediately see everyone switch over. Oil and gas can be more profitable, even if it isn't cheaper. The other thing making oil and gas attractive to a certain type of investor is that it's high-risk, high-reward. Solar and wind are not. You put in a bunch of money, you build your solar farm or wind farm, and you're guaranteed to get a healthy amount of profit, but maybe not a full-on sell-your-house-and-move-to-Tahiti amount. With drilling, you put in a bunch of money to explore new regions, and if you don't find oil, you lose. But if you do you win big. The only problem is you drilled so much oil that now Tahiti is flooded, so I guess I mentioned in Winnipeg it is. The economics shakes out a little differently for fracking, and I encourage you to listen to that episode, but certainly for conventional drilling, it can be a really lucrative investment if it pays off. And if you're in the oil and gas industry, you're there because you want a high-risk, high-reward investment. It's very easy for an investor to get into solar and wind, so if oil and gas investors have made clear that they actually want the gamble, even if you or I might feel differently and say, we'll take the guaranteed profit that doesn't emit a billion tons of carbon. But even if, as an investor, the high-risk, high-reward potential of oil and gas might be appealing to some, It causes a lot of problems for all of us in the rest of the economy. One, there is the cost of climate change, what we would call an external cost. According to AccuWeather, Hurricane Ida had an economic impact of $95 billion. Hurricane Maria was $215 billion, and Hurricane Katrina was $320 billion. For that, you could hire a thousand Tom Brady's. Imagine all the avocado ice cream and deflated footballs you'd need. But for hurricane cleanups, all of us are absorbing these hits and paying taxes to help fund them. And while oil and gas infrastructure is very vulnerable to climate change too, these overall climate costs don't show up in an oil company's bottom line. The same could be said for costs of health impacts from air and water pollution, damage to land and ecosystems, social injustices, national security concerns such as those we're experiencing right now amidst the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and plenty more. And two, even setting all that aside and looking purely at the economy, success of oil and gas doesn't mean success overall. Look at this year. Oil and gas are raking in profits, but we're seeing awful inflation, high food and gas prices, and the S&P 500, an index tracking the 500 largest companies on the U.S. stock exchange, has been doing terribly. Of course, the S&P 300 is doing great. That's the singles and poetry event I'm going to after this. I met a 78-year-old woman named Lucinda last week, and whew, does she know her way around a soliloquy. 
Oil and gas may be one of the only industries having a great 2022. But this is the first time in seven years that oil prices have gotten this high. And when oil and gas have bad years such as 2020, we do see bankruptcies such as Chesapeake Energy, which can lead to layoffs, but we also see the government jump in and issue bailouts to try to prevent worst-case scenario economic recessions. That, again, is our tax money, and that's just one way our government subsidizes fossil fuels. In fact, according to the International Monetary Fund, if we divide the amount of subsidies U.S. fossil fuels received by the number of people in the U.S., we would be looking at $2,000 per person. 644 of those dollars were just for diesel and gasoline. Imagine... If gas prices were a dollar or two more expensive, but everyone got $644 taken off their taxes. I mean, we'd still be angry, but at least we'd be angry in a Ford F-150 Lightning. I know, it's not that simple, but I hope you can see that the economy is not a monolith. The economic interests of an oil and gas investor might be completely opposed to the economic interests of you or me or the country or even all the other big businesses in the S&P 500. So I do think the economic motivation is in line with the extremely urgent climate motivation when we look at these carbon bombs and say pretty much point blank that these can't proceed as planned. I talked about a lot of foreign governments actually running many of these projects, but the country with the most emissions planned is actually the United States at 140 billion tons. This is 22 carbon bombs and over a fifth of the carbon bomb emissions. That's obviously frustrating, but as James Corden once said about making celebrities drink whale piss, with great challenge comes great opportunity. The U.S. totally has the power to slash and or regulate their carbon bomb projects, and if they do, the rest of the world might see that and follow suit. According to some of The Guardian's interviewees, a good place to start would be the 40% of carbon bombs that have not started production. Governments do have the power to do that. All these projects require government approval. Canceling a project that's in progress is a lot more complicated and creates what we call stranded assets, where oil and gas companies poured in a bunch of money and now can't make it back, and that does negatively affect the economy overall, not just those companies. I think there's good arguments for why it's worth biting that bullet at some point, but certainly knocking out the 40% of carbon bombs that haven't started seems very logical for that reason. From there, we can do a lot to incentivize things like buying electric cars, buying heat pumps, options for people to transition away from fossil fuels, and dry up some of the demand that is ultimately driving these companies in the first place. There are also policies like carbon taxes or cap-and-trade, which can reflect some of those external environmental and social costs of oil and gas. Those policies haven't always been executed correctly in the past, but that's a whole other episode, and I don't feel like making the parrot I hired to write these scripts do that right now. Another idea, more on the economic side, is called a windfall tax. Basically, when you consider that the government gives fossil fuels so much money, especially in bad years, 
fossil fuel companies ought to give some back in the good years. That essentially means rather than taxing income or carbon, the government would tax profit. Whatever profit they brag about to their shareholders, the government takes a bit of that back. And you could even design it where that gets paid as a dividend to the American people. Sort of a, we gave you money, now you give it back. Like we're Venmo requesting fossil fuel companies, and probably having to hit remind 50 times so you don't have to awkwardly confront them in person. And you can structure it such that as the company becomes more profitable the tax rate goes up. That also makes it less of a high-risk, high-reward investment. If the government is going to mitigate the risk with subsidies and bailouts, it's only fair that they also mitigate the reward. You can't have it both ways. At least be lucky the government isn't paying the bailout money in the form of NFTs with pictures of chameleons. None of that actually eliminates these carbon bombs to the extent necessary for the 1.5 degrees Celsius goal, though. And honestly, I don't really have an answer for that. This report is a really big deal, and I'm trying to process this as much as you are. Well, maybe not as much. Lucinda got me Lindor chocolate truffles and told me everything was going to be okay. So we have to see. But I certainly expect this will not be the last time we talk about this, and I hope we can find ways to do more specific coverage on some of the individual carbon bombs, since each one has its own story and own set of possible solutions. So it's okay if you're overwhelmed, because I'm overwhelmed. But stay tuned, because we're going to explore this more, and I can confidently say that there are paths plural out of this mess. And if everyone knows we're headed toward the equivalent of a thousand Tom Brady's, I think we can find common ground. Do you wish your toaster waffles could be completely burnt on the outside, but still ice cold in the center? Then your old toaster is for you. With your old toaster, you can contribute to global warming by using a whole lot of electricity just so your bagel can immediately catch on fire. Awesome! Your old toaster. Try to stick a fork in it. I dare you. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to Tip of the Iceberg. It's time for Ask Me Anything, where our listeners get a chance to ask me any environmental questions they may have. Submit questions on our Patreon, email, or social media. Questions from patrons go to the front of the line, so be sure to sign up today at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Today's Ask Me Anything comes from Mike Mello, who asks, Has anyone attempted to predict the trend of climate change along with the order and timeline in which different forms of life will be significantly affected? Thanks so much for the question, Mike. And short answer, yes, we have. Going backwards, we've been collecting sufficient data to have accurate year-to-year climate readings all the way back to 1880 which is pretty amazing. So we can see with precision how the climate has changed since the Industrial Revolution. 
and via fossils, ice cores, single-celled organisms at the bottom of the ocean, all these different measures, a group of scientists called paleoclimatologists can date global temperatures back hundreds of millions of years. And we can actually see epochs of history and prehistory marked by changes in climate, even quite recently. It was nowhere near the magnitude of today's climate change, obviously, but there was a period of hotter temperatures from around 800 to 1200 AD, followed by a period of cooler temperatures from around 1300 to 1850 AD, which if you'll notice, lines up exactly with medieval times and the Renaissance. And I could go on a whole long tangent about all that, that's really cool. So maybe one of you can ask me a follow-up question about that. Going into the future, it's a little different because like you say, we are making a prediction. But it's not like predicting the weather or a game in the Stanley Cup because we have control over what happens to our climate. If we cut carbon emissions to zero, the climate stabilizes. If we don't, it continues to warm. And there are even what we call tipping points, where the climate warms beyond what we would expect purely from fossil fuels and land conversion. For example, climate change causes hotter and drier conditions, which lead to wildfires, which lead the trees to release the carbon they were storing, which then warms the climate even more. We've already crossed some tipping points, and obviously those are concerning. But you can see from all of that that not only is it difficult to predict future climate, but it entirely depends on what we as people do. And that's why, if you read the IPCC report or other scientific research on this, scientists won't give you one future prediction, but they'll create a variety of emission scenarios based on different policy decisions we could make. Everything from us doing nothing and warming around 3 degrees Celsius, to successfully meeting our 1.5 goal, to backsliding and warming more like 4 degrees. The IPCC report also maps out the consequences of following each of these scenarios and gives several options for how the 1.5 scenario could be successfully achieved. To answer the second part of your question about how different forms of life are affected, we have a lot of information on that too. Obviously still questions to ask, but again, we have in our control how much the climate warms from here, and the more it warms, the worse the impacts. We have seen a lot of consequences already, including several extinctions, but we're not locked in to a worst-case scenario. For instance, half as many terrestrial species face extinction at 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming as do if we reach 3 degrees Celsius of warming. And I think this gets into a really important point that becomes very relevant as we talk about carbon bombs. It's actually why I picked this question this week. 1.5 or 2 or 3 sound like really arbitrary numbers, and we do talk about them as if we don't have control over it sometimes. But I can't emphasize enough that even 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees of warming are vastly different in their impact. If we want to talk about life, limiting warming to 1.5 as opposed to 2 exposes hundreds of millions fewer people to climate risks and resulting poverty, fewer people to deadly diseases such as malaria and dengue, billions fewer people to extreme heat waves, 
At 1.5, over 70% of coral reefs would be destroyed. At 2, more than 99% would be destroyed. At 1.5, there's a good chance we prevent most of the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheets from collapsing, and contain sea level rise to a few feet by the end of the century. At 2, the ice sheets could collapse, ultimately leading to 30 feet of sea level rise, which would submerge New York City, Boston, New Orleans, much of southern Florida, and so many other low-lying areas around the world. We could adapt in a world with 2 degrees warming. I'm not saying it would be the end of humanity or anything. But avoiding our extinction shouldn't be our standard. I'm trying to very concretely lay out for you what would happen. We are really making life difficult on ourselves if we warm to 2 degrees, whereas containing to 1.5 prevents a lot of that damage and can be done strategically to simultaneously achieve economic and social development, as we discussed in episode 10 of Tip of the Iceberg. How many tons of carbon dioxide could we still emit to remain under that 2 degrees Celsius of warming? We'd have a 50-50 chance of meeting that threshold if we were to emit 1.5 trillion more tons of carbon. So 646 billion tons from these carbon bombs wipes out nearly half of that budget too. And squaring the consequences of 2 degrees with that reality, I hope you can see why I'm approaching this carbon bomb story from The Guardian with this much urgency. 1.5 is still not pleasant, but it's a whole lot better than 2. And given all the amazing solutions that exist to feasibly contain us to 1.5 while helping the economy, helping our health, helping national security, helping eradicate injustices, I almost don't care what we do, just that we do something. I know it's overwhelming to see the path we're on, but remember, the solutions aren't sacrifices or even trade-offs. They are really, really cool, and just listen to any episode of this podcast to learn more about them. So I know I went on a bit of a tangent there, but I hope I answered your question, Mike. And for more on how different plants and animals fare in a changing climate, I do encourage you to listen to any past episodes that interest you, because each form of life really does have a different story. Thanks again for the question, and thanks to all of you who listened to Tip of the Iceberg. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and your questions move to the front of the line for Tip of the Iceberg. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you on Friday for a deep dive on Ice Shelves.